Welcome to Passy Mears CAM Podcast, Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, speech language pathologist Nicole De Palma, having a conversation on the role of fees in decannulation. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Conversations on Aerodigestive Management, the CAM Podcast. I am here this morning with Nicole De Palma, and I'm going to be talking with her about her experiences, and we're going to talk with you a little bit about tracheostomies and that decannulation process. But before we get into that, I want to introduce Nicole. She is a speech-language pathologist based out of New York. She's the owner of Endoscopy Dysphagia Specialist, a mobile fees company, and she services a wide variety of settings throughout uh, the city of New York and some surrounding areas. She also is president of Tracheostomy Education and has the website tracheostomyeducation.com with a lot of resources on that website. She's published articles, spoken at ASHA, and done a number of webinars that provide education to professionals who work with patients with tracheostomy. Nicole, is there anything else you want to add just as far as your background and experience goes? Sure. Just to start, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to do this, this talk. Tracheostomy patients have my heart. I really love working with them. I first started working with them after my clinical fellowship year. I got the opportunity to work at Barlow Respiratory Hospital um, back in 2009. Barlow is a long-term acute care facility in Los Angeles. They focus on critically ill patients, particularly those with trach and vent. So most of them were with trach and vent, and they specialized in weaning there. And that's really where I began using speaking valves and started an inline speaking valve program. Barlow is also where I was first introduced to fees, um, which is flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. And it's really such a great tool to have for this population. So yeah, really early on in my career, career, I, um, I worked pretty much every day with this population and have been dedicated to helping them ever since. Um, the website tracheostomy education is for, you know, helping a variety of clinicians with learning about tracheostomy and has some, yeah, like you said, some articles, some webinars. Um, and it's, I, I love working with this population. So I'm happy to be here. Well, good. Well, I'm glad to have you. And um, I will share that you mentioned working at Barlow. Barlow is one of our centers of excellence. They were actually our first center of excellence for facilities who work with patients with tracheostomies, and they're still a center of excellence. Yeah. So Barlow has a little history with us as far as their work and care of patients with tracheostomy. So I'm sure that was good experience to get. Yeah, that's where I I started the inline um, speaking valve program there. And that's when we, yeah, we first became a center of excellence while I was there. It was such a good experience working with Passy Mirror, having them come out and do all the training for our staff. And that's where I became really close with working with the Passy Mirror team. Yeah. I will share that you do occasionally still work with us as a consultant and providing education or answering questions that people may have, especially up in the New York area. So we appreciate when you are able to give us some time. Thank you. Yeah, I, I enjoy doing um, education for past senior in services or webinars, whatever it may be. Yeah, thank you. So today, what we're going to be talking about is the idea of patients with tracheostomies and decannulation 
that, you know, getting that tracheostomy tube actually out and not having to need that anymore. And we're going to talk a little bit about how fees incorporates into that process, how you might use it or what the benefits of fees are. So we're going to cover kind of a, a mix of topics. But I do want to say, I shared this in one podcast not too long ago, that the idea of decannulation really begins at intubation. Like mm-hmm. as soon as the patient's intubated, we want to start planning and thinking what the needs are going to be. Because ultimately with patients with tracheostomy, if it's possible, now their diagnosis may not allow that because it may be degenerative or, or a permanent state with the respiratory status. So they may need a tracheostomy permanently. But for those patients who don't need it permanently and can get the tracheostomy to be removed at some point in their recovery, that's what we're talking about today is that trajectory towards having that tracheostomy tube removed. So I want to start with you and, and in the area of just what your experience was with tracheostomies and swallowing management and, and working patients towards decannulation. Is there anything there that you'd like to talk a little bit about? Yeah, sure. So I totally agree. I think working early on with these patients, right when they, you know, have that trach tube, they're on the ventilator, we can get in there early to help prevent muscle disuse atrophy. So one of the things that speech pathologists can do is, you know, working with the team, with the respiratory team and helping to get that cuff deflated because when the cuff is inflated, First of all, patients can't speak because the air is flowing only in and out through that trach tube, Um, but it also can increase their secretions. They're not able to maybe sense those secretions, so they might not swallow that often. So there's this kind of cycle of, you know, where they're having difficulty managing their secretions. And since we're not deflating the cough, it kind of causes more muscle disease atrophy. So Deflating the cuff early on, even while they're on the ventilator, can help prevent that. And then once we get that cuff fully deflated, we can put a speaking valve on. They can start communicating with their care providers so that their care providers can understand what they're saying. They're at less risk for adverse events just because they can let them know, you know, something medically going on that no one's able to understand maybe before. Um, We can also start rehabbing the swallow process a little better early on once we get that cup deflated and that speaking valve on because it provides a closed system. So the passive valve is the only bias closed valve, which means that there's no leak. So when once the valve is in place, air flows in through that tracheostomy tube. And at the end of inhalation, it goes back to the bias closed position. So no air can escape back out the tube. So that hundred percent of the air flows through the upper airway. So it restores the patient to more normal physiology so that they can now rehab that upper airway so that we can get that cough reflex back. We can, um, start having them manage their saliva and their secretion better, which is really good for once they do get off the ventilator as well. So that, because that's an indicator for decannulation, we want them to be able to manage their secretion. So starting early on that process helps them to more quickly be able to get decannulated. And also we can do respiratory muscle strength training now that we have a speaking valve in place, which we know helps with the swallowing and secretion management and coughing. So all those things early on in the process, help move the patient along once they're off the ventilator. 
I appreciate that overview because I think sometimes we don't think to get in there early enough Mm -hmm. or in some facilities, we're just not, it's not ordered for us to get in there that early. So talking about the benefits of that early intervention can really help, I think, as people kind of plan what they're going to do with their patients with tracheostomies and mechanical Mm -hmm. ventilation. Right. And I think a lot of the hesitation is, oh, you know, we can't deflate the cuff. The patient's on the vent. The alarms go off, but the alarms are supposed to go off because the exhaled tidal volume is not going back to the ventilator. It's coming out through the mouth. Um, When can we deflate the cuff? You know, it's just as long as the patient's medically stable, you have a physician order, we can try to slowly you know, deflate that cuff and get the patient back to normal physiology. So it's really important to get in there early and educate clinicians to get in there earlier on to help prevent that muscle disease atrophy. Do you mind sharing a little bit about fees? Because you also do fees in this patient population and share a little bit about the benefits of fees for patients with tracheostomy and even how that may help progress the idea of decannulation. Sure. So FEES stands for Flexible Endoscopic Evaluation of Swallowing, and it's an exam where a small scope is placed into the nose to view the pharynx and the larynx while the patient is eating and drinking. So we usually dye the food blue and green so that we can view the food and liquids a little bit better on the camera. And since patients with tracheostomy are at such high risk of aspiration, even some studies showing up to 87% of patients with tracheostomy aspirate. And of those, it's such a high risk of silent aspiration. So there's another study showing 82% of patients silently aspirate, which means, you know, the patient, we give them food and liquid at the bedside and they don't cough. They don't Uh, throat clear, which is what we typically look at when we're assessing a patient for swallowing. Their voice doesn't change, maybe no wet vocal quality, or we're not even able to assess their voice because the cuff is inflated and they have no voice. So we can't even assess that, that voicing, which the laryngeal nerve is one of the, you know, it could be damaged and we don't even know. So it's really important to get these patients an instrumental assessment of swallowing before they eat orally. So either an MBS or a FEES and FEES does have some benefits over MBS with this patient population. So typically patients with trach, they might have a lot of tubes or equipment and, you know, it might be difficult to transport those patients since they have so many of those equipment lines and tubes. So a fees can be done right at the patient's bedside. There's actually a lot of mobile fees companies that provide these services, such as myself, where we can come right to the facility, to the patient's bedside and provide fees without the patient even leaving the facility. So that's one benefit of fees. Another is that patients with trach are typically intubated before they have that trach tube. So we know that intubation, when that tube passes through the vocal cords for intubation, that can cause damage to the vocal cords and any neighboring structures. So it's really good to be able to directly view the larynx, the mucosa during the exam. So 
that can be, you know, one of the main causes of difficulty the patient's having is that maybe the vocal cords aren't moving, they're paralyzed. So we can actually view that. And, or we might see an airway obstruction and we can refer on to laryngology so that the patient can get a proper diagnosis and treatment. And feces also can be a longer exam since there's no radiation. So during fees, I usually will assess the patient in two different conditions, especially if they've been using a speaking valve previously. So one condition would be with the speaking valve off. And then another condition is with the speaking valve on. And that's because studies have shown that occluding the tracheostomy tube, either with a finger, with the passimere valve, or with a cap, can reduce or eliminate aspiration in some patients. So I've seen, and I've seen that during my exams too, when the speaking valve is on, no aspiration, take it off, and the patient has aspirated. So we really want to do both conditions, especially if the patient is using a speaking valve. Um, and since you're using those two different scenarios, that can kind of take a long time. So a fees might be more appropriate for that, um, that case too. Okay. And then another benefit is that secretions can be visualized on fees. So that's particularly important for decannulation, which we'll get into a little bit more. But we can, we can view ice chip trials. So seeing how a patient manages their secretions, see how they manage ice chips, see if they can clear their airway of the secretions, um, assess sensation of the larynx. So all those things are important for, um, for decannulation too. One of the things I like about fees is what you were just talking about with trait patients that you can see the larynx, see the vocal folds, see kind of what they're doing with secretions. Um, and those aren't really visible in the same way. We can't look at that if we're doing a modified barium swallow study. You mentioned as you were saying that how this may be beneficial in that decannulation process. So can we talk a little bit about how being aware of what's going on with the vocal folds and secretions may help in the decision process for decannulation? Yeah, I mean, I think SLPs can really play a huge role in this decannulation process, particularly with using fees. Some of the patients who in the literature that are deemed candidates for decannulation are those where one, the indications for the trach have been improved. So maybe, you know, they don't have a pneumonia anymore and that was their reason, or they had some kind of mass, maybe it's been removed or a patient tolerates decannulation cap that's been appropriately sized without strider, confirmed airway patency to the level of the glottis, adequate level of consciousness, laryngopharyngeal function to protect the, uh, the airway from aspiration, an effective cough, and then all procedures requiring anesthesia have been completed. So like you were saying, what, how can SLPs use fees to help them along the process of decannulation? Well, we can help in, in a kind of assessing for airway patency, but we would always refer on to laryngology if we noticed anything, you know, unusual. So SLPs, we might do a fees and we might see that the vocal cords are paralyzed in the medial position. So the patient might not be able to breathe through that upper airway um, because the vocal cords are closed in the medial position. 
So another thing we might view is, is edema, laryngeal edema, um, can maybe prevent airway patency. Patients with granulomas, um, tracheal stenosis. So we might be the first actually to view this and then we can refer on to laryngology for them to diagnose and maybe provide a treatment remedy for that. Another thing is the secretion management. So with fees, we can, can assess their, the patient's ability to protect the airway from aspiration. So with fees, we can, that's a really useful tool to assess for secretion management, airway protection, and aspiration. We can view the secretions if the patient is penetrating or aspirating the secretions. We can visualize that and can assess for vocal fold movement and the ability to clear those secretions from the airway. That's all really important to, for if a patient's a candidate for decannulation. Because if the secretions aren't able to be cleared and we remove that trach tube, the patient, how are we going to suction them? You know, how are they going to remove those secretions? So those are, that's a really important thing to be able to clear secretions from the airway. They did a study where if the patient had massive pooling of secretions, which impaired the view of the vocal folds or silent aspiration or penetration, then the patient was not deemed a candidate for decannulation. And in the same study, they assessed for laryngeal sensitivity and the number of dry swallows as predictors for decannulation. So testing to see how many, if the swallows were um, two or more swallows within a two minute period, then they might be, they might be candidates for decannulation versus if they're not swallowing at all, then those patients were not decannulated. And they, using fees, they had a very high rate of decannulation more so than not using this as a tool. So really being able to directly view the secretions and how the patient's responding to them can help determine really if a patient's ready or not to have that trach removed. And the cough reflex too is also really important for the SLP to assess for patients with trach to help determine decannulation candidacy. And we can view that also on fees. We can have the patient cough and see if they're able to remove those secretions. Um, and patients with a stronger cough are at lower risk for pneumonia, we know. So we need and you know we need subglottic pressure to produce a cough. So having that patient wear a speaking valve or cap to be able to generate that pressure is very helpful. We can also assess and rehabilitate the cough. So we can use respiratory muscle strength training, um, cough techniques to help the patient to rehab back, you know, back yeah. to a more normal cough strength. So something you were saying there about secretions and swallowing and how many, and that one study that talked about how many swallows within a couple of minutes, we get a question that's pretty commonly asked related to decannulation and swallowing. And the question that comes up is, well, back up, there's some facilities both in and outside of the United States that have a part of that process, decannulation process is that a patient must, and I'm doing air quotes, pass a swallow study before they can be decannulated. So they actually have to be able to eat, drink, and, and pass a swallow study doing well 
before they'll consider taking the tracheostomy tube out. Do you have any comments on that at all? Well, I think that sounds pretty subjective past the swallow test. I mean, there's various levels, I guess I would say, to what it, that means to pass a swallow test. Like, do they need to be eating a regular diet and thin liquids? No. Can they, can the patient be aspirating thin nectar, th- you know, those types of things during the fees and still be decannulated? Yes. As long as the patient is able to um, manage their secretions is the most important thing and be able to cough their secretions through the upper airway. Um, so they, you know, they don't need suctioning anymore. They're able to swallow their saliva. Those are the most important things. Um, now if a patient is eating a regular diet and walking around and, you know, capped for a week, (laughs) then definitely take that trach out as long as they, uh, the indicator for the trach in the first place has been removed, but well, that, yeah, that's so, what I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah. So I don't, yeah, they don't need to be eating a regular diet and thin liquids to be able to remove the trach. And that's kind of what I was getting at. I just wanted to bring that into it as kind of a summary is um, I didn't want people confused thinking that the fees was to pass, pass and I'm doing air quotes again, but to get them eating and drinking before they could be decannulated that, uh, that that's not a part that's not one of the steps it's really that secretion management the fact that they can manage clearing those secretions either by cough or they can swallow them and that it's that side of swallowing versus eating and drinking but we do that's actually a pretty common question so that's why i wanted to discuss it a little bit i think another common thing is like oh before we deflate the cuff we have to do this green dye test And if there's green dye through the trach tube, then we can't deflate the cuff. And that's where kind of we were talking about a little bit before where you get into that cycle then where, oh, since they're aspirating, we're not going to deflate the cuff, but then how are they ever going to get better, right? So as long as their vitals are remaining stable and they're not having, you know, respiratory issues when you're deflating the cuff, then um, deflating that cup is really important to be able to get that patient to manage their secretions so that they're not aspirating their saliva anymore. Yeah. And that leads nicely into what are some of the barriers to decannulation? Um, you know, what have you seen? And because you cover a variety of facility types. So what are some of the barriers that you've seen in this decannulation process? A lot of facilities just don't even have protocols in place to aid in the process of decannulation. So I think having some kind of multidisciplinary protocol involving respiratory speech, the physician is obviously always going to be the one that makes the ultimate decision of whether or not that trach tube is still needed. But having a decannulation protocol, including cuff deflation trials, speaking valves and capping, that can really help speed the process along because instead often the patient's really just left with the trach tube. There's no one assessing those patients for if the trach's even needed, if they can use speaking valves, if they can be capped. So having a protocol there to help move the patient along is important. Um, Another barrier might be that 
the patient, maybe they are having trouble exhaling through the upper airway when we place a speaking valve or cap. And then it's just kind of like, oh, well, they can't do it. So the patient is just left with that trach. And maybe clinicians don't know what the next step would be. And the first step might be just even something simple as checking what size the trach tube is, because if the trach tube is large in outer diameter or length, then when you put a speaking valve on or cap on, the patient might not be able to exhale around that tube and through the upper airway. So just making the tube a little bit smaller for the patient to be able to breathe around can really help them to get to the next step um, to remove that trach. And then also just getting appropriate referrals in place, such as ENT can help so that we could, you know, check that airway, um, see if there's something can be, that can be done to improve airway patency and potential decannulation. Obviously, I would say get someone to do a fees on these patients to check their secretion management and to see if the patient is managing their saliva to be able to, you know, add to the information to see if they can be decannulated. So all those things are barriers um, that I've been seeing. Well, I'd agree. And having a protocol in place is definitely a huge step to making sure everyone's on the, on the same page with the decannulation process. One of the things that you mentioned as you were talking about is that cuff deflation. And you've mentioned it a couple of times, just when we deflate the cuff. And I wanted to share one point for people to consider is what the purpose of a cuff is, because the cuff on a cuff tracheostomy tube is really to seal the airway for mechanical ventilation. So once, if that patient's in the process of, and they've weaned from the ventilator and they're not using the ventilator anymore, that may be a consideration to discuss with the team. Do they still need that cuff for anything? And if they don't, you know, start looking at moving them towards a cuffless tracheostomy tube would be one of the steps in that decannulation process because getting that air to the upper airway and opening up the airway and getting that space in there is a big, you know, big step towards the decannulation. So Nicole, as you were talking about it and you've talked about what you've seen and done with fees and what you've seen in different facilities, what are some of the things that we as speech pathologist could do, or how could we participate in this decannulation process? Like what is our role? I mean, there's, there's a lot of different roles that we have. One is, yeah, helping maybe get that protocol in place, speaking valves being part of that process. So respiratory and speech getting together, doing um, valve placement, seeing if the patient can breathe through that upper airway. And if they can't, helping to maybe choose um, a tracheostomy tube, whether it be, you know, downsizing the tube, like you were saying, cuffless tracheostomy tube can help to um, just get rid of that bulk from the cuff so the patient can breathe better through that upper airway. Tight to shaft tracheostomy tubes, which when the cuff is deflated, there's no bulk from that cuff. Other tubes, like I don't know if I mentioned fenestrated tubes or to allow for air to flow through the tracheostomy tube. They might not be used as much unless the patient we think is going to get decannulated quickly because it can cause granulation tissue, but that's um, a possibility. SLPs, 
can, you know, be involved in talking about, okay, maybe this patient's getting ready for capping now that they're managing wearing the speaking valve all waking hours or whatever it may be. We can be involved in um, assessing for that airway patency with the valve can include just you know, is there back pressure when the trach, when the speaking valve comes off, that can indicate that there's some kind of airway obstruction, monitoring their vital signs. Um, sometimes we do manometry with patients to see what the pressures are, especially for patients who are lower level consciousness or babies, which I don't work with, but a lot of people do manometry with babies and speaking valves. And then endoscopically, again, we can assess for airway patency that way. SLPs can be involved with uh, the sw- obviously the swallowing process with fees, just assessing for the swallowing, assessing for the secretions, um, and then the therapies. So getting the patients to swallow their secretions more often, again, using speaking valves to help with that sensation of swallowing, um, help with them to be able to cough those secretions out. Um, That all leads to a better candidate for decannulation. One piece I'd add in there is we also can help by providing education. Mm -hmm. You know, We can explain to the patient what the process is, what's going on, you know, why certain things are done. I sometimes find, at least in some facilities, that we are a primary educator when it comes to this area because everything else, it's so fast moving in some cases, like, you know, the doctor's in and out or someone's in and out and we can spend a little time helping them understand what's going on, you know, and what the plan is. The only thing I would add, and I'll use this sort of as a summary and then let you share if you have any final thoughts or points, but I would often share with people that I think of the using the speaking valve as an in-between step. So the patient goes from an open tracheostomy tube to a speaking valve. So they're still breathing in through the tube, but out through their mouth and nose. And Mm -hmm. then typically they'll be capped for a period of time so that they're breathing 100% in and out through their mouth and nose. That cap completely occludes the trach, and then they're decannulated. So sometimes when I was trying to be a proponent for using the valve with patients, that was one of the arguments I would use, so to speak, as I would share, well, look, it's an in-between step. It's going to ease them towards that decannulation. It's going to help in that weaning process. And, uh, And so that was one way of supporting you know, kind of the use of the valve. Is there anything that you think we've missed or that you want to clarify or add on about time, time about patients who are being decannulated or working towards that decannulation? Maybe just for swallow therapy, people ask a lot, well, what can we do to help get their patients with trach swallow better? I mean, after you do an instrumental exam, you can see which, you know, muscles are, you know, maybe having some weakness and you can target those muscles specifically, or if it is, you know, something wrong with the vocal cords, then you can have the, have the patient see an ENT and go from there. But once you have like the, the trach tube occluded either with a passimir valve or a cap, you're looking at rehabbing the patient as if they didn't have a trach tube, right? So you're doing the same type of swallowing exercises that you might be doing for a patient 
without a trach, but focus on the ones that, you know, the problem that the patient is having, and you can base that on the results of, you know, a fees or an MBS to see, you know, what target muscle group the patient's having trouble with. Um, A lot of times the patient has maybe like impaired base of tongue because they were intubated and that tube, you know, passed through the and was sitting on the base of tongue and the patient wasn't swallowing as much as they should. Um, I mean, it's just different for every patient. So that's why you want to get an individualized assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you actually just shared something. That's one of my soapboxes <laughs> and that, and that is that when a patient has a valve or a cap, you're, you treat the deficit, right? That, so you don't do, there's no therapy for the valve or the cap. That's just close the system and redirected the airflow. And then, but then you have to know what the deficits are and you treat those deficits, whether, exactly. like you said, if it's the muscles that you saw in swallowing, if there's some sort of um, issue there, or if it's voice or if it's language, no matter what it is. So I appreciate you sharing that too there at the end, because that's a, that's a, like I said, one of my soapboxes. <laughs> Nicole, I want to thank you for having you on. I think that having people hear the link between fees and decannulation and the decannulation process a little bit will be very helpful. Uh, I hope that people can take some little nuggets away that they can use in their practice to help either support the use and working with the patients in that process and having a role on the team or just, you know, what to do with those patients. I think we've kind of covered both as we chatted. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Kristen. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymuir.com slash podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed. 